Praise God. How are you guys? All right. Praise God. We're going to do something we don't always do. It's kind of hard to go through an entire book in one setting. Uh, it's because, you know, a lot of the books are kind of long for that. And if you do a book in one setting, there's not going to be much to say about it. You'll just be reading it. And of course, a lot of people would be like, wait, man, I could have stayed home and just read it, you know. But being in fellowship is important, so that adds that dynamic, and there's something, you know, obeying the Lord's command, encouraging one another, all that's good. Uh, so I, it's hard to go through a longer book in one setting, and we've gone through, believe it or not, I think we went through the Revel- book of Revelation in one setting on, uh, about five, six months ago on our Good Fight uh, podcast, but that was 22 chapters, but there wasn't much to explicate because there wasn't much time, you know. But we did talk about how it tied together and so forth, and we had a great time. But I want to go through Second Peter, and obviously we didn't read every verse of Revelation. And I'm doing this because I want to go through, that's one of the books I want to go through when we get done with Revelation. But Second uh, Peter and Jude are like really close to each other. Very similar books. Uh, uh, there's some borrowing going on, I believe, that's directed by the Holy Spirit between Second Peter and Jude. And I thought, I'm not going to go through Jude and Second Peter after Revelation, probably just Jude, which is where I'm leaning. So I thought, you know what, we'll actually be going back and forth in the books, you know, here and there as it relates to the book of Jude to Second Peter. So we'll be covering both books to a certain degree, but we won't be going through every verse of Second Peter. So I thought, you know what, this book just burns in my heart because the days in which we live, and I wanted to talk about how it applies to a lot of the teaching that goes on today, but we'll be able to do that when we go through the book of Jude, although I will mention some things but it's, you know, this is considered like the book of Jude, Second Peter, the dark corner of the, of the New Testament. And it's not dark because there's not a lot of light there. I think it's because there's so much light here that just so speaks against a lot of the easy believism that we see out there today uh, that a lot of people just avoid the book of Second Peter and the book of Jude because it just puts a spotlight on a lot of what's going on in the church today. But I think we as believers really need to pay attention because the book of 2 Peter has a lot to do with making sure that we are living holy lives. Uh, it deals with judgment, you know, deals with repentance. I mean, right there, holiness, you know, repentance, uh, you know, end times. It deals with eschatology, deals with false teaching, a lot of things that people don't like to talk about, you know. So in 2 Peter... Uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot of background. And if I had a lot of background to share with you, which I will uh, when we go through Second Peter one day in the future, I'll share more background. But as far as going all through all three chapters, that's not going to leave me a lot of wiggle worm. <laughs> uh, you know, wiggle room, <laughs> wiggle worm. Won't leave me a lot of wiggle room. Uh, how do wiggle worms help you in exegeting Scripture, right? Uh, but at the same time, we'll be able to get into it. Uh, but I personally believe that Peter was... Uh, uh, you know, militating against a Gnostic, incipient Gnosticism as John was in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John. Uh, Paul was to a degree in his letters uh, to Timothy, also uh, Corinthians, and maybe a hybrid between Judaism and Gnosticism when he dealt with in Colossians and so forth. And uh, there was incipient Gnosticism, and we, we we're talking about proto-Gnosticism. It wasn't full-blown yet. Although the Apostle John had already been dealing with a Gnostic called, named Serenthus, who was teaching the false doctrine that Jesus was not the Christ, but the Christ came upon Jesus, who was a separate person at his, you know, at his baptism and left him before the crucifixion, which was a lie. And according to Irenaeus, who got it from Polycarp, who sat under John, 
uh, the Gospel of John was written to combat those lies of early Gnosticism. In 2 Peter, we're dealing with uh, similar ideas. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, we read, and I've got to be really careful here because I do not want to do even two parts in 2 Peter. Because if I do two or three or four parts, it's like, well, why go through it in more depth later? Because I kind of went through it already. But right when I see Simon Peter, I just want to talk about Peter for a while. And I can't do that. Other than to say it's interesting he has two names right there. I'll say at least that much, right? Right? Because his name was Simon and Jesus called him Petros, which means little stone. And upon this Petra, Jesus is the Petra, the large boulder. Upon this Petra, which was Petros's Peter's statement that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'll build my rock upon the Petra, Jesus. And Peter goes on to talk about how we're just the living stones built into the head cornerstone, which is Jesus in Peter. But God chose Peter and uh, his name, Simon, he was more like shifting sand. And the idea was that God, through sanctification, was going to make him like a rock. And he did, amen. And that's neat because the Lord wants to make us, before we're saved, we're like shifting sand, amen. And he wants to make us living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're a royal priesthood, we're chosen of God, amen. So Simon Peter, now keep in mind, he denied the Lord three times, he fell away, amen. He was restored three times, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And it's one of my favorite passages in scripture, because it's like he reversed Peter's fall. Didn't take away what Peter did, but it restored him, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. So uh, if you're just joining us, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 1, we're beginning at verse 1, we're actually going through all three chapters tonight. Hopefully, okay? And man, I've already spent, I can't spend more than a minute on each verse or even less, right? So we're in trouble. Simon Peter, a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this will be a lot of meat left in the bone. But if I keep talking about what's be left in the bone, we're going to have less meat talk, left in the bone. So henceforth, I'll try not to bring that up. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, it's to believers. This is addressed to Christians, those who have the same faith as ours. And Peter was blown away because when Peter came to faith, he thought only the Jews could be saved. He thought the atonement was limited just to the Jews. And God used and opened his eyes. Do you remember what happened? Who was the man that God brought to Peter and Peter to the man supernaturally? Cornelius, remember? A Roman centurion. And he was a Gentile. And he feared God, it says. He gave alms and prayed and so forth, but he wasn't saved. He responded to the light he had, then God saved him. And Peter said, what's to withhold for him from being baptized? Because he came to the faith just like us. He's received the Holy Spirit just like us. And then they baptized him. And he learned a lesson that genuine believers in Messiah, whether a Jew or Gentile, are, are Christians, are followers of Messiah, amen? Doesn't matter what color you are, red, brown, yellow, black, or white, we're all precious in his sight. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, amen? In Christ, there's neither male nor female either. Galatians chapter three, verse 28, amen? We're all one in Christ Jesus. We have different roles, praise God, because God is a God of order uh, and so forth. But God saved Peter, and I just love how he says to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you and you notice you'll always see grace and peace. Grace always comes before peace. You'll never see it, and you see this in many New Testament letters. Grace and peace. You'll never see peace and grace. Why always grace and peace is a salutation we read? Because you can't have peace unless you have what? Grace first. Amen? The Bible says twice in Isaiah, the prophet railed 
Uh, there's no peace to the wicked, saith the Lord. You cannot have peace in your life if you're living a wicked life. You need to come to the Lord. You need to come to the, the, the throne of grace and ask for mercy and receive forgiveness of sins. Then you can have peace with God. Amen. Grace and peace. And it, it comes through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Praise God. I love that. Multiplied to you. Not just added to you. Amen. Uh, God's math is he wants to multiply grace and peace in our lives. And it says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That grace and peace comes through the knowledge of God, the Father, and through the knowledge of Jesus. Okay? And the Greek word right there, knowledge, is not the simple word gnosis, which is used over and over again throughout the New Testament. It's a good word. Gnosis is a good word. Knowledge. It's the Gnostics who abused that word. But the word is not a gnosis there. It's epigenosis. Epa, epidural, epicenter. Epa is an intensification, okay? In fact, I have a Bible here that was just given to me by a great brother and sister, uh, Chris and Lynn, a couple weeks ago called the Legacy Bible. It's a very literal translation out of Grace, uh, I think some of the professors at Grace Seminary I'll put it together. I know that, that it was associated with them. And it's very literal. And as I was looking at it, I was like, I love the literalness, you know. And then it'll have, like, for instance, right here in verse 2, you know how it translates epigenosis? Full knowledge. I like that. Because it's bringing out the Greek. It's the full knowledge that, you know, who Jesus is, you know, uh, how he's Lord and Savior. And we're saved through the epigenosis. Now, notice how he defines their salvation. Okay, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, in the epigenosis of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything that, uh, pertaining to life and what? Godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge. Now here you just simply have uh, the word gnosis. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So knowledge in the scripture is very important. The Lord says his children perish because of lack of knowledge. It's important that you know the scriptures, amen? And you're able to grow, the Bible says, in knowledge and, and discernment and in love in Philippians chapter 1. But I love it, seeing that his divine power, God's power, the creator of the universe, has granted, he's gifted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That means when you go through hard times of the soul, you're going through spiritual hard times. You don't need to go see a shrink. You've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness, right? The worldly, we, as believers, we don't go to the worldly, godless, spiritually impoverished counselors and sit in the seat of the ungodly to receive spiritual wisdom. In fact, when it comes to the values of life and what's important and what's good and everything else, the world has it backwards, amen? The, the world says, love yourself more. That's the problem. We need to put ourselves first. The Bible says, deny yourselves. Amen. Follow Christ. They're antithetically, they're opposed to one another. So he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And it's almost as though you went in and you got a new house. You're like, oh, we, don't, we just don't have the money to buy any furniture or any blinds or anything. It's just terrible dishes. And you know, we're just, and then boom, you move in and it's just perfectly. You could not improve. It's all there for you. Well, God's already provided all for you in Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, amen, you're fully furnished in Jesus. You just need to rely on him and sit on his couch, amen, not the psychologist's couch, and go to the, him, amen. 
Now, uh, it's interesting, uh, through him who called you, called us by his own glory and excellence. For, and I, I'm going to be skipping. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to comment on a lot of things. I wish we were talking about that. I wish we were talking about three chapters, guys, right? So verse 4, for by these, by these what? By these things he's just talked about. By the knowledge, the epigenosis, by the, uh, the grace, the peace, and all these things. For, uh, by these, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. I love this. We have precious and magnificent promises. There are a lot of precious things in the word of God. Amen. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. I love that passage in the book of Psalms. Precious before the Lord is a, a woman who has a quiet and meek spirit, who's spiritual. You know, she's, she's God-fearing. She has self-control. Amen. Precious. Uh, precious blood of Jesus, Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 20. It's good to know what's precious before God because that's what we should be majoring in. Amen. Amen. <sighs> by his precious makes him promises so that by them you may what? Become partakers of the what? Divine nature. He doesn't say that you might become divine. He's talking about being partakers of the divine nature. Who's the divine nature? God. And, well, how do I become a partaker of him? Through the gospel. Christ in us is hope of glory. Amen. Jesus lives in us. Okay. Uh, some teach that, oh, it means that we are becoming divine. That's not biblical. Even C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity that, that we uh, by becoming partakers of the divine nature, that means we are gods, you know, or becoming gods. It's not what the Bible teaches, okay? Uh, it means we partake of his fullness. He lives in us. And then he says what? Having what? Escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. The world that we live in is incredibly corrupt. Why is it corrupted? Because of lust. Because people put things, lust for pleasure, lust for money, lust for fleshly uh, sins above what's right and what's good. And therefore, we have all kinds of, you know, people killing each other over money, people killing each other, other over drugs, over sex, over all kinds of different things. And it's incredibly corrupt in this world that we live in. And this world that we live in right now, our country is becoming more and more corrupt, corrupt as we speak. But we've escaped, it says, the corruptions of this world. Amen? Through the what? The epigenosis of the Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel. And then we read in verse 5, now for this reason, for this very reason, because we're partakers of the divine nature, God lives in us, amen, and we have these radical, wonderful provisions. Uh, now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply. So now he's going to talk about supplying seven attributes, seven virtues, seven, God's number of completion, number of perfection, to your faith with all diligence, so now he doesn't want you to say, wow, look what I have in Jesus and just rest on your laurels. Now he wants you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation if you're trusting Jesus right now and he's your Lord and Savior, you're already saved, amen? But you're working out what he's done in you, amen? And becoming all that he's intended you to be. So supply moral excellence. And I'm not, and I'm not gonna spend time on here long because you know what? I did a little series, it was a seven or eight part series in between a couple books, this was probably about, I don't know, two years ago uh, when COVID was just started right around there. It could be three. I'd have to go look. Uh, when I went through all seven of these things. And I remember I was, I was done with it. A lot of people were like bummed out because they were just, they felt like they were growing so much through our studies. But you add moral excellence, you know, 
what's right before God, what's good, the excellency of, of, of what's right. You add knowledge, right? The knowledge of God's word, that's gnosis again, the general knowledge of scripture, of Jesus and so forth. And in your knowledge, so you add moral excellence and to your moral excellence, you add knowledge, okay? Because first and foremost, you get right with God, you repent, amen? And then you seek to be like Jesus and, and you grow in your sanctification. And then now to be able to do that, you need to start adding knowledge as to what that means and what that looks like, amen? So you add to moral excellence knowledge and your knowledge self-control, okay? Wow, I have knowledge, now I need to make sure I have self-control because having knowledge... But the Bible says, you know, you can have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up if you don't have love. Amen? So you need to not just have knowledge, you need to grow in self-control. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy. And one of the fruit is, among the fruit is self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. Okay, now it's good that you have moral excellence. It's great that you're growing now in knowledge so you can grow in moral excellence in your, in your knowledge. These are all really, really good things. And, and it's good that you're growing in your self-control. Now it's good that you have self-control, but man, it's not good if you have just self-control for five minutes, five days. So you add to your self-control what? Perseverance. Perseverance, amen. You become a person whereby your character has been transformed by Christ, where you don't, you're not hot-tempered anymore. Uh, you don't lose your cool. You don't start screaming, yelling, and freaking out when things don't go right, amen. You have perseverance now, and you put one day after another where you have self-control, and you become a person, and maybe before Jesus, you were known maybe for not having self-control. Okay, I mean, my house was like the loudest house in the block. I mean, when I was a young guy, you know, one of the loudest houses. I mean, other people probably say, no, we were, you know, we were a pretty loud house, you know. And then we got saved, our household changed radically. And uh, that was it's what, amazing what God does. And it says, in your perseverance, add godliness, right? Christ-likeness, where you become more and more like the Lord. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, Okay, bind kindness and truth around your neck, the Bible says. Write them on the tablets of your heart in Proverbs chapter 3. Why does he emphasize that? Around your neck, on the tablets of your heart. Because I love it, kindness and truth. And I've always emphasized that blessed hope. We want to be known. You want to be known before God. This is me, God. I want to be like you. And you, you are truth, amen? Your word is truth. And you are also love, amen? And I want to, I want to, I want to love you and I want to be kind-hearted. I want to be Christ-like to people. I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to walk in truth. So brotherly kindness is huge. And Peter had to grow in that too, right? Because remember when Jesus said, you know, you'll all deny me. And Jesus said, I, they, I'm ready to go to prison death. They'll do it, but not me. That wasn't very kind of him, was it? He should have been, if he really felt that, he should have said, oh Lord, I'm going to start praying for these guys right now. That would still be a little arrogant, like he's not going to be the guy. But it'll be a little closer to caring for them at least, right? But he shouldn't have done either of those things. He should have just said, oh, I hope it's not me, Lord. You know? But now he's walking in brotherly kindness. And that's why when Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. The last time, do you love me? Meaning phileo. Do you even have brotherly love toward me, Peter? Not just agapao. Do you have phileo toward me, Peter? He was telling him, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Okay, and one of the words there for lambs is little lamb, meaning the young, those who are young in their faith. Feed them. Take care of them. Be concerned about others, Peter. Get your eyes off yourself. And I love what Peter's talking about, growing in brotherly kindness. The Bible says, don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And your brotherly kindness, love. Amen? <laughs> so brotherly kindness, that's, that's that love for your, your brothers and, and your sisters in Christ, but not just that kind of kindness. Love for God. Amen? Of course, love for your brothers and sisters, but love for your spouse, love for your neighbor, amen? Love. 
And it's interesting because in verse 8 he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these qualities ought to, if you're a Christian, these qualities ought to be yours to one degree or another. But what's the key word? These qualities not, shouldn't just be ours. They should be what? They should be increasing in our lives. Amen? We should be increasing in brotherly kindness. We should be increasing in the knowledge of the Lord and the things of the word. Amen? And we are. Here we are today. Amen? We're increasing. Unless you go home and then you beat everybody up with the Bible with what you've learned and you're short-tempered and all that. Then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Knowledge is just one of those things. I want to see how much I know. No. No. We want to, we want to see how you, much you know. The Bible says, you know, wisdom is seen in its gentleness in James, you know, and how we live out our lives. So these ought to be increasing, increasing. And if they're increasing, I love this, that means we're growing in these things. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want to be unfruitful, okay? What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 6, happens to the fruitless branch? It's cut off, thrown in the fire and burned, amen? He told his elect apostles, you know, not Judas wasn't even there, you know. You're clean, he said, through the word I've spoken to you, you're clean. And he said, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he says, he takes away, verse 2. Then in verse 6, he said, if, if, if any man doesn't, uh, he said to remain in me, abide in me, meno. If man does not remain in me, right, he'll be cut off, thrown in the fire, and be burned. So uh, it's critical for believers to examine our hearts and say, are we fruitful? Is there evidence that I'm in the faith? Is there evidence that I'm growing? Amen? Because it's like riding a bike. You know, how many of you can stop on your bike and just stay there for an hour? Not going anywhere. Not very easy. Maybe, John, maybe you can for a little while. Maybe a little balancing act there. But after a while, it'd be kind of boring, right? Eventually, you'd get off, right? You want to go forward, amen? You want to keep going forward. And when you're going forward, it's easy to stay on your bike, right? As long as your eyes are open and you're watching because it's going to deal with blindness a little bit. <laughs> it's another problem, right? So the idea is to continue in the faith, is to continue going forward, amen? Continue with the momentum of seeking Jesus. And the more you have momentum and you continue to look at Jesus, uh, the more you cruise along and the more you bear fruit. And it's like, well, how can I be fruitful? By growing in these things. When you just seek the Lord, you grow in knowledge and you, and you pray, Lord, help me be the person you've called me to be, amen? Help me to be kind, you know? Help me to have perseverance, Amen? Help would have self-control. And you're abiding in him because in John 15 when he talked about abiding, he talked about praying. He talked about obedience to his word. Amen? And as we abide in him and seek him, we bear fruit. We have to be, we have to be, it has to be about him though. It can't just be some knowledge of him. We have to be seeking him. Amen? Like you don't cut off like the, the, when Jesus talked about the vine and the branches. If you say, man, you know what? I really don't like going. Let's say you have a vine in your backyard. You got fresh grapes. Man, I love grapes in the morning for breakfast. But man, I'm just tired of going and getting them all every morning. I'm just going to break off a few branches and just leave them on, on my, you know, my kitchen counter or on the table. And I'll come and there'll be grapes there. Is that going to work? No, because the branches have to be in the vine. Amen. And Jesus is the vine, he said. 
And we have to be attached to him through faith. And that's how we are attached to him, by trusting him, trusting him and looking at him to him. And as we trust in him and we look to him, we bear much fruit. And that's an awesome, awesome truth. And uh, so, and do you think the, the branch and the vine is like, oh man, I just got to just hang in here and uh, I've got to bear fruit somehow. No, the branch just simply what? Hangs in the vine, right? And it naturally bears fruit, amen? amen. So you just hang in there with Jesus. Trust in him, amen? Continue to look to him and guess what you'll do? You'll supernaturally bear fruit to God's glory. And that fruit could be praise toward God, Hebrews chapter 13. It talks about how our praise is the fruit of our lips. If you are praising God earnestly from your heart and when you lift up thanks to God and you praise him, that's fruit. That's some of the fruit, amen? Praise to God. If you give somebody even a glass of cold water in Christ's name, that's fruit. That's a good work done for Jesus' glory. If you give a gesture of love and encouragement to somebody in Christ, that's, that's fruitful, amen? If you give a word of encouragement to a brother or sister, these are all little things that sometimes we don't realize are how, how big they are in God's eyes. They really, you know, it blows me away sometimes when I see, like, you know, my grandchildren, because they're young, and when kids are young, you know, that verse that don't just think of your own interests, but the interests of others. We see little kids think of the interests of others. Doesn't it just like bless your heart? If you have children or grandchildren, and when you see them, you're just like, oh, well, I believe it. That's, we're a little picture, you know, we're creating God's image. That's a little picture of what he feels, I believe, on a much more immense level when his children want to do right and give him glory and, and, and be a blessing to others. It brings a, a smile to God's heart. I really believe that. But verse 9 says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his what? Former sins. So he's not talking, this letter is not written to non-believers, it's written to those who have obtained the same kind of faith as Peter. So he's not talking, and sometimes, you know, there's people that you can apply something to that, you know, they were never of us because they didn't remain with us. You say, ah, you know, those new agers that came in here, man, you know, uh, when we started preaching Jesus and confronted them, you know, they left and they were never really of us in the first place. Otherwise, they wouldn't have hated the message we were preaching about Jesus, you know. Sometimes, so, that, that there's, that's context specifically talks about Antichrist in the church right there, First John 2. Other times, you got to say, who's it speaking to? Well, here we know for absolute sure that he's not talking to non-believers because he says they can become what? Short-sighted, having forgotten his what? Purification. Purification for his what? From his what? Former sins. So it definitely isn't talking about, a, do you ever, do non-believers, were they purified from their past sins? No. This is a warning to believers, for all of us believers. It's showing how we're family and we're supposed to grow in the faith. Amen? Supposed to grow in grace. Because, and it blows me away because I look at a verse like that, you know, and I'm like, and Lord have mercy on me because I don't want to be, I don't want to, you know, because, but I look at that, I'm like, how can you get to the point where you are so lost that you are not only fruitless, no fruit in your life, just fruitless like that branch without fruit, but you forget that you were ever saved. You ever, were ever forgiven. I mean, you don't even have any recollection that you ever, you know, were saved. And, you know, that's the way perhaps many people are who are like the internet trolls that are atheists, you know. Maybe they had a young faith in the Lord and they didn't grow. And now they hate Christianity, they hate God, and so forth. And they wouldn't even say they were Christians. And they forgot their experiences when they were young because they hate God so much. 
I don't, I don't, I, so I don't say this in any kind of uh, proud or arrogant way, like how can you get there? Because I know you can. Because I know I've got to be very, very careful with Scripture. And one person I learned that from is Peter. Because when Peter was told that he would deny the Lord three times, he denied that that could happen. Amen. And Paul, remember Paul said, we just studied this recently, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we all have to recognize that the capacity for evil in each of our hearts because we're, we, we come from Adam, amen, the human race has fallen, even though we're born again, our flesh is still attached to us. If we allow it to awaken and we allow sin to reign over us, we give over the instruments of our body to sin and death, we're capable of the worst kind of evil. I mean, the most evil unimaginable. That's a scary thought. And that makes me want to stay close to Jesus, man. That makes me want to stay on my knees and makes me want to continue to grow and be thankful and always remembering what Jesus did for me and for you. That's why we don't do the Lord's Supper once a year like, or once a month. Not condemning those who do, except the Jehovah's Witnesses. They do it once a year, but they need Jesus, so they're condemned because they have the wrong Jesus. God save them. Amen. But we, we try to celebrate it every Sunday because Jesus said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. We want to always remember what he's done for us. And we want to have what he's done for us always before us and remember uh, and grow in faith. Because right here he warns about how those who've had the same faith, these folks he's talking to, can forget that they were ever even saved. Don't let anybody tell you that a genuine believer could never fall away. You can fall away to the point where you become spiritually blind, where you have no fruit, and you forgot you were ever saved. Would you agree that's falling away? Yeah, most certainly. But then he says in verse 9, or verse 10, Therefore, brethren, therefore, brethren, of course, he's talking to brothers, those who have received forgiveness, be all the more diligent to make what? Certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never what? You will never stumble. Some translations fall. It means the same thing. Okay? And what, what kind of fall is he talking about here? Well, the the ultimately get to the point where you are fruitless, blind, and forget you were ever saved in the past. And the idea here is make your calling and election sure, okay? Now, he's not saying make sure you get saved because he's warning them about getting to the point where they forget they were saved. So he's talking to saved people about making, uh, as NIV says, make your, and the King James says as well, make your calling and election sure, ratify, confirm what's already been happening in you to the end, Okay? Remember, how, how many of you are old enough to remember uh, the hanging chads over in Florida when, during the Bush election? Remember that? <laughs> you know, some people, some of those Democrats just did not make their, uh, the election sure. <laughs> it punched those things hard enough, amen? You want to make sure, I did a message after that called Make Your Con Election Sure. <laughs> I applied it to the faith, you know? So we need to make sure that we are saying, yes, I am all going all the way through with Jesus, amen? No turning back. I'm making my calling and election sure. And by the way, this is a very, very good passage because uh, we do have a responsibility in our election, our calling and election. God calls. Many are called, right? But few are what? Chosen. How do you make your calling sure? You respond. And then when they come into the wedding feast, there's one guy there and he doesn't have wedding clothes on. And he's thrown out in the outer darkness. 
because he didn't accept the Lord's provision. So he didn't make his calling and election sure because that's there in that context that Jesus said many are called but few are chosen right after he's chucked out of there. How did they not make their calling and election sure? In Matthew chapter 22, earlier in the passage, it says that, you know, they would go to highways and byways, right? Inviting everybody, right? At first they went, though, to invite the Jews. And it says they said they were, it says they were unwilling. Remember, they were busy, their businesses and everything, you know. It says they were unwilling to come. Well, if you're unwilling to come, you're not going to make your calling sure, amen? If you say, hey, I'm going to come, and you're, I'm coming, but then guess what? You're in rebellion to God, and you're not clothed with the garments of salvation. How many of these people aren't, how many people didn't make their call election sure, and they were trusting Jesus at one time. They left their first love. Their eyes are off of what Jesus did for them, off of the cross, and off of the fact that they're saved by grace through faith. And now they're just save the whales. They're doing all these things and think they're doing it for God. And on judgment day, they say, hey, stand before God and say, hey, didn't I do all these wonderful things? Right? Woo! And there'll be a lot of people, by the way, that he'll say, I never knew you to. There's a lot of people he never knew. There's other people who they forgot that they were even saved. So we need to make sure that we make our calling and election sure. And that means we say yes to the gospel, amen. And our election is in Jesus. You have to understand that. It is, election is Christocentric. It's not us-centered. It's not about us. Too many people make election about man, okay? Well, God just loved these guys, but he didn't love those guys. No, election is Christ-centered, okay? Christ is the elect one. In fact, most, old, most scholars in whatever camp they're in will acknowledge that the Old Testament taught a corporate view of election, that if you belong to Israel, you're among the elect, okay? Now, you had to be in good standing, you had to be in the faith, because if you weren't in the faith, you could be what? If you're in rebellion, you could be what? Cut off. And whose name was changed to Israel? Jacob, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, but being a simple descendant of Abraham did not make you one of the elect. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. Paul makes two strong arguments about, about election in Romans 9. Okay? He makes a lot of strong arguments. But two of his arguments to uh, get the Jews to not misunderstand election is he comes against the argument that you're saved by your works. And a lot of the Jews were saying, hey, look at me. I'm doing the, the Jewish things. Therefore, I'm working, right? Nope. That's not how you get in. Paul in Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, emphasizes that, that we're saved by faith at the end of Romans. That you have to, it's by faith, and they stumbled over the stumbling block because they, be, they sought to be right with God by their own works, Paul says, right? But the other thing that Paul argues for is that election isn't unconditional. It isn't because a lot of the Jews thought, thought they're unconditionally elect because they were children of Abraham. Remember, remember what, uh, think what Paul says there. He talks about Abraham's sons. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau, it says, was a fornicator and despised his birthright, Hebrews chapter 12. He allowed the root of bitterness to spring up in him, which defiles many. And Jacob is a picture of Israel. And that's a scripture that's quoted from Malachi. And not everybody that was part of Israel was Israel, right? Many were cut off. Look what happened in the wilderness, right? A lot of people were cut off in the wilderness journey itself. And then he talks about his sons, right? He talks about, you know, you could also look at, you know, you go back and right to Ishmael and Isaac, right? Were they both chosen? No. Jacob and Esau, were they both chosen? No. 
In other words, just because you're a child of Abraham by, by physically doesn't mean you're unconditionally saved. In fact, John the Baptist said that God, to the Pharisees, that God is able to rise up children from Abraham from these rocks, amen? So quit saying we have Abraham as our father. That's what they were saying. And Jesus said the same thing to them. You're doing the works of the devil, okay? So election doesn't happen to be just I'm unconditionally elect because I'm a child of, no. Paul emphasizes that election is conditional upon faith that you must put your trust in Jesus. That's the end of chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Now, it's very, very important. and We're, we're at a, a, a very theological term there, so I'm spending a few minutes there. But think about this for a minute. Really try to get your brain around this. Is Some people go to Romans 9 and they say, hey, look, you know, they're reprobate. There are certain people that are just reprobate. The Jews, that's who he's talking about there. But you know, they weren't reprobate beyond salvation. They could come to Christ because if you read the beginning of Romans 11, he says, Paul says, yeah, you know, they were hardened. They were hardened. Hardness has come upon the Jews, right? But he says, but through your faith, the Gentiles, he wants to provoke them to jealousy that some of them could come to the faith, amen? So they weren't hardened beyond the point of becoming among the elect. And that's why Paul says a little bit later in Romans 11, for the Jews who were broken off, right, were hardened, that if they don't continue in their unbelief, they could be what? Grafted back in again to the what? The tree, the, the elect tree. See, election is in Christ. In the Old Testament, it was Jacob or Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the chosen servant, my servant whom I have chosen. He's the elect one. And if you want to, well, what if I want to, how do I make sure I'm elect? It's simple. If you want to elect, how do I make college sure? Simple. Put your trust in Jesus. He's the elect one. If you're in him, you're part of the body of Christ, and you are one of the elect. What if I'm outside of Christ? You're not one of the elect. What do I do? Come to Christ. You'll be one of the elects. He's the elect one. It's not that complicated. And this is based on the Old Testament idea of election being Israel. But Jesus now, those who belong to the Father, right? And they feared the Lord. They loved him. And they weren't broken off. Those are the ones that Jesus said, the Father is giving to me. Remember Jesus and John, he has this very interesting language. Some people think it's mysterious. There's certain people that are being given to the Father by, to, to Jesus by the Father. That's not that hard to understand. Look at the context. If you, if you obeyed Moses, you'd obey me. Or if you, you know, believed his words, you'd believe, you believe my words. I'm sorry, is what he said, right? Those who were trusting in the Messiah and waiting for him, when he came as a good shepherd, he was given, they were given to him. Do you follow what I'm saying? And, those are, and then he has other sheep. It's us. Whoever believes becomes among the elect. So make your calling an election sure. There's a lot more to say about uh, election, but I'm going to leave it off there because there's so much there. But uh, as long as you practice these things, you keep growing in your, your faith, you won't fall. Once you think, ah, oh, you know what? I don't need to continue to grow in my faith. Ooh, then you're in, in serious trouble. And he says, in, uh, make your calling election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Verse 10, verse 11. For in this way, in this way, meaning by growing in your faith, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, I don't have time to get into it. I'm really tempted to go off here. But it will be supplied to you, meaning when you get there, you have this abundant entrance. Or in this way, meaning through the means that God's provided, he'll abundantly supply to you the enablement by his grace to enter into his kingdom. Okay. 
but it could be understood both ways in the Greek. And, and I believe both are actually true because I believe though there'll be, uh, he, his grace gives us, it enables us, amen, to continue to trust Jesus for sure. Okay, and I also believe there'll be an abundant entrance when we hear well done, good and faithful servant, amen. So both those are true. Not that it means both those things in that specific text. Verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I love how he's always ready to remind them, even though they already know these things. If you're a good teacher, if you're a parent or you're not a parent, you're just you're teaching other people or you're just encouraging people in your faith is don't grow weary of telling them the same thing. You know, you, if you're going to be a good teacher, you got to teach the same truths over and over again because we have short memories. Remember, they can even forget that they were, lost, they were lost and then saved, right? And Peter puts them in remembrance of these things. Verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir up you by way of reminder. So he emphasizes that again. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying every five minutes tell your children, clean up your room, clean up your room, clean up your room, clean up your room, clean up your room. You know, you got to be creative and prayerful, right? Lead by example and everything else. Sometimes you might have to do that over and over again. <laughs> Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Christ has made clear to me. He's going to lay aside his earthly dwelling. Jesus made it clear to him. Remember when Jesus called him and restored him back to himself in John chapter 21, right? He told him in what way he would even be killed or martyred and put to death and how he'd grow old and that, uh, you know, he'd be led in such a way he didn't want to. He wouldn't be able to dress himself. And it was how he would actually glorify the Father in his death, which I believe were such beautiful words for him to hear. I mean, somebody tells you you're going to be, you know, not going to be able to, con you know, dress yourself and you'll be led away and killed. That would be good words. Yeah. If you're Peter and you just denied the Lord three times and you feel horrible about it, and, th and that's your legacy. And then you hear, no, you're going to go out as a martyr. I believe those, were mu that, that, that would be mu those would be words that would be music to my ears if I had denied the Lord three times. Like, I can't believe it. Amen. And I was being told, don't worry, Joe. You're going to go out trusting me with a bang. And you're going to lay your life down as a witness that you love me. That's what I believe he's referring to there in verse 14. And I also, and he says, and I also, uh, and I will also be diligent that any time after my departure, You'll be able to call these things to mind. He wants them to, and praise God, because Peter wants them to recall these things to mind. It's written down as scripture. It's the eternal word of God. For we did not follow, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about? He's saying, hey, God's word is not based on, and this gospel is not based on cleverly devised fables, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. And I love that, man, because, you know, when, they, when Judas betrayed Jesus and they needed another apostle to fulfill, to fill his role, what did they want? They were seeking someone who what? Who had been a witness, who had been with Jesus in his ministry and been a witness of his resurrection, amen? And these were men, okay? Many of these men went to their deaths as, like Peter, okay, as sealing their testimony in their blood that, they, that the Messiah had risen, okay? People will do a lot of crazy things for lies but they, that they don't know are lies, but people don't do things like give their life up for something they know is a lie, okay? That's not normal. But these guys went back to the same places they got beaten over and over again to preach, amen? They could have said, I'm going to go back to be fishermen, you know? They, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, 
When he's in the book of Acts, what I have, I give to you. And he prayed for this guy, the lame guy, and he got healed. Amen? So these guys were being hunted like animals at times. And they have the, their eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And, that, and that's one reason you, your faith should, faith should be strong because it was written and handed down by eyewitnesses of Christ. And there's no explanation as to how Christianity became so dominant and it was not among the rich and the powerful and the elite. They were opposed to it, amen? But it couldn't help but spread because of the transformation first and foremost in the lives of the apostles and the prophetic witness, which he refers to here as well. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory. Now I love this. When he's talking about his majesty here, though, he's not even specifically yet talking about the resurrection. For when we received honor, and, or for when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Now remember, Peter was real close up to this situation. Amen. Because remember, when that was, Peter's going to be the first guy to remember this because it was a tough time for him. Because remember, Elijah was there, right? Moses was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Huge mountain. We don't know exactly. We, we, when you're in Israel, we say, oh, maybe that was that. that's the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't know for sure. It just says a high mountain. But this Transfiguration, and maybe it's good we don't know, you know, because people would venerate that mountain because Peter was already ready. Let's build tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He starts talking, let's do this, let's to, rem to remember this. And then <laughs> that's when the Lord, God, the Father said to Peter, this is my son, hear ye him, amen. So, uh, and then what do we see? Elijah's gone. Moses is gone. All you have is Jesus there. And why were they gone? Why were they there? Well, Moses was a witness of God's law, which leads people to Christ. Amen. Elijah was a picture of the prophets. Amen. Who prophesied about the Messiah. They point to Jesus. It's not about Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. It's about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's always about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And uh, hear ye him, the Father says. I love that. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, man. We have these experiences Peter talks about, but more importantly, we have the prophetic word made clear. God's word stands above any experience and points to the very experiences that took place in history. And I love it because he says of this prophetic word, we do well to pay attention to it. We do well to pay attention to it. I mean, let that sink into your heart. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to as, as to a what? A lamp shining in a dark place. How long should we be looking at this prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dark place? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right now, man, I mean, you should rejoice that you have God's word. Lamp to our feet, light in our path. This prophetic word tells you what's coming in the future. Why? Because people are so blind Amen. in the world today. I mean, they just hear something in social media and they'll line up and burn buildings down. Right. And they'll just go with the crowd, mob rule. And we'll look back and say, hmm, yeah, that's prophesied. You know? I mean, we see these plagues and cataclysms and 
and, 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 and big brother using these things to, to corral everybody together. And we say, yeah, the Bible said there'd be these plagues and there'd be, you know, big brother type system in the end and there'd be a controlling spirit among the politicians and this would all pave the way of the Antichrist. And we have a prophetic, and by the way, I mean, some people, they don't point to prophecy much. They point away from it. In fact, Rick Warren, uh, the purpose-driven pastor, he said that prophecy is a satanic deception. Now, if you, you cornered him and sat with him, he'd say, oh, no, I believe in the prophecy of the Bible. But no, he said, he said that Jesus told the apostles, don't really pay attention to prophecy. That'll distract you from your mission. What? That's what he said. It was a distraction from our mission. And he took a scripture out of context and taught that in one of his big books. And a lot of people pointed that out. I mean, I saw that it was horrifying. I'm like, no, that's not true. You know, uh, the Bible says, without a prophetic vision, my people go astray. Amen? Amen. We need God's prophetic word. Amen. In fact, being a witness and fulfilling the Great Commission is part of the prophecies that herald the end. Amen. But Jesus told the apostles all sorts of things to watch out for uh, just before his death on the cross. And then after his death on the cross and his resurrection, later he gave John the book of Revelation. Amen. So we need to pay attention to Scripture. Verse 20. But know this. First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All of God's word harmonizes and fits together from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, the end, the last chapter 22, and the last verses of that chapter. And it's not as though, it all harmonizes perfectly. And I've, I tell some people when they're newly saved, read the first three chapters of Genesis the very beginning of the Bible, read the last three chapters of the book of Revelation and see what you discover. You'll see that paradise is lost and paradise is restored. You'll see there, there, there's death and there's banishment from Eden. There's no access to the tree of life. And now you'll see there's no more death, right? Now they can partake of the tree of life. And then understand all these wonderful things. And then, because one way, if you really want to get around the curve and understand what a, a, a great novel is about, you can cheat and read the end. Well, guess what? I encourage people not, I'm going to call it cheating, but read the end. Read the beginning and read the end and understand how Jesus fits in the middle. And he is the alpha and he is the omega. He's the beginning, he's the end, and he's the middle, amen? Because it was through him bearing the curse on his head, the crown of thorns, amen? And taking the curse that we deserve and why we're booted out of Eden upon himself that we will be in a new heaven and new earth where it says there'll be no more curse. Where it says that the briar and the, and, and the, the sticker bushes will bloom right? Because he bore that curse for, for us. Amen. And we just look at the scriptures and praise God that it all fits together. And if you come up with a strange interpretation that's contrary uh, to the holistic teaching of the word of God, then you know that you are off, not God. Okay. Because God's not a liar and none of his word falls to the ground. Chapter two, verse one. But false prophets, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who what? Bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Okay, so as there were false prophets in the Old Testament times, there'll be false teachers among you who shall privately bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Okay, now those are some scary verses there. And I want to say, okay, wait, what's Peter's thrust here in Second Peter? And how does he expose these false prophets as being what? And how, does this, how has this already happened with false prophets in the past? And then, of course, he'll even name some of them, like Balaam, right? 
I mentioned Balaam as one of these false prophets. But you can go to chapter 23, for instance, of uh, Ezekiel or 13 of, you know, uh, Jeremiah. Or Ezekiel 13, I think, Jeremiah 23 and what have you. And you see these different scriptures which talk about how, because he warns about those that turn grace into a license here. That's what he's going to warn about a lot in 2 Peter. And in those books, it warns about those who, who, the false prophets, their people of God were in rebellion in Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day. And Jeremiah, God thunders through Jeremiah. He thunders through Ezekiel. You know, like through Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, their blood's going to be on your head unless you lift up a trumpet and be a watchman and warn them. And if you warn them and they don't repent, then their blood will be on their head. But if they turn, their lives will be saved. They'll deliver themselves. Okay? If they don't turn, they'll be damned. And he says in Ezekiel 33, 11, you know, say to them, you know, thus says he, he that his, uh, lives, that's God, as I live, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you then die, O house of Israel? So he's crying out to them to come back, to repent, to turn. That's God's heart. I, I love the fact that that's his heart. His heart is for you and us to know him and love him. But these false prophets, they wouldn't say turn back because they would tickle their ears. They were like dogs, it says, that didn't bark. Okay? They smoothed over a wall and made whitewash uh, when there was decay. They, they're described as those who, they, it says they, preach, they spoke lies and my people love to hear their lies. And that's what it's warned about in the second Timothy chapter four, that false teachers in our day will tickle people's ears telling them what they want to hear. That's why we have this false uh, prosperity gospel that God wants you to be the rich and he wants, you're a king's kid and, he, and uh, it's all about what we get, you know. But true riches rather than getting the lost saved and living for Jesus, in the, it's about living your best life now. And it says in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that the false prophets, that they promise the people life even though they don't repent and come back to me. So what was the idea? They're promising them a false grace message that even if you refuse to repent, you, were still, you still had life in God's name. And that's, I mean, that, and I don't have time to go, th- I would lo- if we we're going through Second Peter, we'd be going through all those passages. But it's, it's pretty heavy because that's what's happening today. And verse two, it says, does it say a couple of people will follow them or a few? Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth, that's Christianity. Christianity is called the way, the way, the way, over and over in the book of Acts. The way of truth will be what? Maligned. In other words, people will see. What's the, what's the biggest term you hear the world call Christians? Starts with an H. Hypocrites. Because they see people that aren't walking the talk. And that's because a lot of these people are told you don't have to walk the talk, you know? Yeah, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was young before I knew Jesus, but it always struck me as kind of weird. I'd see these stickers. One of my neighbors had the sticker, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. And I thought, what does she mean by that, you know? Now, we are perfect, that's true, and we are forgiven, amen? But we're not just forgiven. That's that I was like, how come even when I was a non-believer, I didn't understand grace then, I understand, it, but we're not just forgiven, amen? We're sanctified, amen? amen? We're becoming more like Jesus. We're partakers of the divine nature, amen? We're becoming more and more like Christ. Now, it's interesting. Uh, many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be maligned. That is what's going on right now. Christianity has a really bad rep because of these false teachers who've turned it into a license for greed and for 
libertinism, do what thou wilt in the church. Verse 3. Oh, by the way, one quick thing. In chapter 2, verse 1, they will deny him who what? Bought them. Amen. We've been bought with a price. Amen. These people, these false teachers, deny him who bought them. They were bought too. Okay. Uh, even John Calvin admitted in his commentary in 2 Peter 2.1 that these false teachers were redeemed, he says, by the blood of Christ. That gives fits to those followers of John Calvin who teach limited atonement that Jesus didn't die for those guys. But even Calvin admit this verse teaches that Jesus died even for the false teachers. And by the way, in verse 14, it says these false teachers go to the blackest of darkness forever. We're not saved. We weren't saved the moment Jesus died on the cross. Amen. We are children of wrath until we what? came to Christ and put our faith in him. Amen. It's not until the blood is applied to your heart that you're actually saved. Amen. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from a long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. I mean, hey, sometimes you get real discouraged when you see all this junk going on. And, you know, but the Bible says God's, God's going to take care of it. And sometimes you see the plea of the, the men of God in the Old Testament and the, in, the, in the minor prophets, the major too, you know, like Jeremiah. But like, where's your judgment, God? How, are you letting the wicked get away with it? Or even in the New Testament, in Revelation, how long will God to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, God, are, you're righteous God. Are you gonna, you, you're going to tolerate this evil? How long? Well, Peter's going to go on to address that in chapter 3, that God's not slack concerning his judgment, right? He's patient toward us, not one that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, Amen. And he gives people time to repent. His judgment's not asleep, it's coming still. But he even gave Jezebel in chapter 2 of Revelation, the church of Thyatira. She was teaching Jesus, said, my servants, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual sin. That's a false prophetess in the church, literally a woman in the church teaching people it's okay to sleep with each other. And Jesus says, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. He's a God of grace. It's like, I can't believe he's that graceful, that full of mercy, though. You should be very thankful he is. Otherwise, you would have been toast, and I would have a long time ago. So thank him for his grace and mercy, but also know his, uh, their destruction is not asleep. His judgment is coming. Verse 4. 4 gives a great example here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to do a, a, a message on the days of Lot. I do that once in a while, but it's, it's really weird when you look at the history of Sodom and Gomorrah and you look at what's going, the ancient, you, you look, there's literally, you know, the remnants of fire and brimstone there and no volcanic activity and it's like where did this come from very fascinating okay reducing them to ashes having made them an example Sodom where they were an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter so that shows you come on now this gives a little bit of insight in what these false teachers are allowing in their assemblies they're allowing sexual sin and sexual perversion and acting as though God's judgment is going isn't going to come this is serious stuff. And that's what's happened in a lot of churches today is that, hey, you know, once you're saved, you don't have to continue in the faith. You don't have to persevere to the end. You could just go sleep with people and everything else. Isn't God's grace wonderful? And if you don't teach this, you just really don't understand grace then. If you don't believe that you can just live however you want, then, oh, then you're legalistic. No. 
Jesus said, he that endures to the end will be saved. Well, that's in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. He's talking about enduring to the end of the tribulation there. Uh, he also said that in Matthew chapter 10 to his apostles, and he wasn't talking about the tribulation. He's talking about their faith. Oh, uh, well, what about this verse? No, you have to endure in your faith, guys. Thus saith Jesus, amen? amen. Now, uh, he goes on to say in verse seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Oh, by the way, Lot was righteous, okay? A lot of people have heart. Righteous Lot, I hear this once in a while. How was Lot righteous? I mean, look, man, he threw his daughters to the wolves, you know, and, and then he ended up getting drunk later, you know, and, and, and he slept with his daughters. Well, his daughters seduced him with alcohol, okay? He's still responsible, okay? He, he blew it big time. He shouldn't have thrown his daughters out, but he's, he's trying to protect these angels, right? Who could have protected themselves, but I don't think he understood exactly who they were yet, right? And he made a horrible move. But aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? We just talked about Peter. He denied the Lord three times. When you see Peter in heaven, are you going to whisper to people? Do you remember Peter denied the Lord three times? It's him. He's over there. I got to deny the Lord three times. Do you think that's how he's going to be remembered? You think when we see David, you're going to say, that's the guy that committed adultery with Bathsheba. You won't be saying that in heaven, man. Because David, it says that was his glaring sin, right? In the scripture. He, he, was, he, lived, he lived pretty much a righteous life and he blew it big time. Amen? So why do we say Lot couldn't have been a righteous man because of that and that? Aren't you glad that the enemy can't just take whatever way you fell short and just say, that's you? Aren't you glad? Well, it says right here that Lot was vexed, and the King James says vexed by the, uh, the evil around him. In other words, when he was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and when he was in Sodom, he, it hurt his heart to be there still. Okay? And he may have even been out sooner, but guess what? His wife had an affinity for the place, right? Well, I should have been a stronger man. I don't know. I don't want to get in the weeds of where Lot was exactly and judge his heart. I just want to say, yeah, he blew it big time a couple times. But guess what? Generally speaking, he was a righteous man, it says in the scripture. And that's why God went and rescued him, right? He told Abraham, there's so many righteous. He's a righteous man, not just by the text here. This is the divine commentary in the New Testament. It says in verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, he was oppressed by the wicked people around him, okay? And he did fall short, but he was still oppressed, and he was righteous for the most part. Verse 8, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, there it is again, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. I mean, I don't know how much clearer it can get right? Day after day, he was tormented. Does it say he was absolutely perfect? No, we're not talking about that, okay? And I praise God that God can look at you, and he can look at me, and even though we have some warts in our past, amen, that we've been declared righteous, amen, not condemned. And we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, amen, and, at the, and also, guess what? Hopefully you are vexed and oppressed by the evil around you and by the evil deeds around you. If it's no big deal to you, you've got to check your spiritual pulse and say, wait a minute, the Bible calls me to hate evil, amen? It should be a bummer when we see all these wicked things going around, amen? Remember the, the, the executioners in Ezekiel? They were going to go cut down anybody who did not mourn over the sins in Israel. But everybody that had a tav put on their head by God, which was the ancient way they used to write the tav was a cross, they were spared, Amen? And thank God, righteous Lot 
was spirited. I will say righteous lot. Because three times he's called righteous in the span of two verses. Verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay. They despise the most, big, the biggest amount of authority they despise is the authority of Yahweh, God himself. Amen. And uh, you have a lot of people that are claiming to be Christians, but they're libertines, man. They just want to call themselves Christians, and it's happening right now. It's a lot of conservatives in the news and stuff. Oh, they're Christians, but they're living lawless lives. We've got to be very careful. Daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Okay? And this is where some of the, which we don't have time to explore, some of the Gnosticism comes in, because a lot of the Gnostics would come, would, would deal with different angels in different ways and so forth, and claim to have authority over them and so forth. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. And by the way, the Gnostics were writing things against God's holy angels in the and against uh, men of God in the Old Testament. And a lot of the Gnostics in the second century, we know for sure, championed Cain, championed Korah. They even had the gospel of Judas, okay, the Cainites. They had the, uh, the followers of Set, you know. They, they, they read the gospel of Judas, and Judas was a hero, right? And they condemn the people and the angels of God. And I believe that was already happening here, which I wish we had more time to deal with that. Verse 12, we'll get into that when we get into Jude. But these... These, these false teachers, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're partiers, man. Okay? Uh, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Ooh, these teachers, these false teachers are carousing hanging out with the believers, trying to suck them into their deceptions. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery. Remember, what did we just read about? They were like the false teachers in the Old Testament, amen? And uh, they were involved, comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, they had no sense of morality. And never ceased from sin. They continued to live lives of sin. Enticing, now look at who they're enticing, verse 14. They're enticing who? Unstable souls. He just said they're carousing with you. That's the believers, Okay? These aren't the Jehovah's Witnesses, guys. These aren't the Mormons. These are people that come into the church, claim to be Christians, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 15, forsaking what? Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. Balaam was a true prophet of God at first. Okay? He even prophesied some of the most beautiful prophecies about Jesus. But he forsook the right way, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression uh, for a mute, a, mute, a mute donkey speaking with the voice of man restrained the madness of the prophet. Okay, now Balaam, according to Jesus, counseled when Jesus is dealing with the church of Pergamum, he taught Balak, the king, because he couldn't curse Israel. He wanted them to curse him as they're coming to the promise and he couldn't do it. So if he, I think it's Numbers 34, 35 or so, and then Jesus says it in chapter 2 of Revelation, the same thing, that Balaam told Balak, this is the way you deceive him. You can't, I can't curse them, but you can seduce them with your women, or the Moabite women, send them over and have them seduce them. And then whip out your idols, have the women seduce them and whip out their idols to get them to worship those false gods. And then God's judgment will come upon them, and it did. 
And it worked because many did not, they forsook the right way because they listened to the teaching of a false prophet and they fall, fell for the lurement of, and there's, there's cults that will come into the church too, like the church of, there's a certain, you know, children of God cult that was around in the 60s and after that for a while where they would, to get members, they would have people go into bars and seduce men and sleep with them and then invite them to their church. Well, it's not so organized always that way, but Satan does that all the time all kinds of people that have been seduced into some kind of false form of worship. But he was, uh, he was rebuked by this donkey, man. Verse 17, these are springs without water. Springs are supposed to give water. They don't bring the water of life, though. These are false teachers. Mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. I, I stand corrected. I said verse 14, where these false prophets have the black darkness, even though the Lord bought them. But it's verse 17. The black darkness has been reserved for them. That, that's scary for these guys. Now look at who they target again in verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice, how do they entice? By fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Who are they going after? Those who've barely escaped. The baby Christians, okay? From those who've barely escaped from those who live in error. That's who they're targeting. And right now you have this so-called free grace movement where, oh, guess what? Are you tired of hearing about repentance and, and confessing your sins? And oh, you just need to really understand grace. We never have to confess our sins again. We never have to repent again. Once you've been there and saved, man, you just don't be concerned about that. That's not, repentance isn't for the church, okay? Repentance isn't for the church. Confessing your sin isn't for the church, you know? Joseph Prince teaches these things. God doesn't chasten his children, he says. You don't repent anymore. You don't want to have to confess. That's, these are lies, guys, but they sound good. These guys are dressed sharp and everything with these $1,000, $2,000 suits, whatever they are, you know, and they seem real slick and everything, but, and it sounds really good. Oh, good, I don't have, I'm tired of hearing, Pastor Joe just talked about repentance way too much, you know. I'm having a good Sunday morning, and then he tells me I shouldn't be checking women out on the internet. Well, you shouldn't be. You need to repent, right? Get right with God, okay? So people are looking to be able to just do what thou wilt in the church. And guess what? These teachings are becoming very, very popular in the church. Notice what he says here. Verse 17, 19, promising them what? Freedom. They're free. Hey, you're free, man. You're a believer. And Peter, and First Peter warns about, watch out, you know, don't turn your freedom into maliciousness. And Paul warns about you being called to freedom, but don't use it as a pretext for the flesh. And he's the apostle of grace. Promising them freedom while they themselves, that's Galatians 5, by the way, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For what a man has overcome, by this he is what? Enslaved. Okay? These guys were overcome. And now they're trying to target those who what? Barely escaped from those who live in error. Uh, barely escaped from those who live in error. Now they're targeting them with sensuality, right? Trying to overcome them. And if they overcome them, then they'll be in the same boat as the false teachers. And look at what verse 20 says. For if after they've escaped the defilement of the world, by the way, I want you to note very clearly here, it's not an accident, I believe it's inspired, no doubt by the Holy Spirit purposely this way, is that the language that's used here in verses 20 through 22 is language of the language of of conversion here is the same language he uses in 2 Peter chapter 1 of conversion about escaping the corruptions of the world through lust. Remember that? That's what and, and through the knowledge, epigenosis of Jesus. Amen. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the 
knowledge. Guess what Greek word that is, by the way? It's not gnosis, it's epigenosis, which I thought it was interesting because in the word epigenosis is a salvation word. For instance, in 1 Peter 2.4, Paul says, God wills that all would be what? All would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Guess what the word is there? The epigenosis of the truth. And in 2nd or in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it talks about, remember I showed you in this, in this uh, Grace Seminary produced Bible, it has full knowledge in verse 2. That's epigenosis. Well, the Greek word, and by the way, John MacArthur, and this came out of his, his seminary, this translation, which is very, very good, by the way. I think it's a great translation in a lot of ways. It translates that word full knowledge in verse 2. And it's describing believers who've escaped the corruption of the world, right? Who, through the epigenosis, that's how believers are being described. It's very powerful when you put it together, how it's described. Well, guess what? I noticed when epigenosis is used in 1 Peter 2, 4, because I just checked, I like to check out translations, it uses full knowledge, epigenosis. Yeah, oh, it's good. In 2 Peter 1, 2, where we started, epigenosis translates full knowledge, great. I notice here, though, when I get to verse 20 and I checked it on this translation, Epigenosis is not translated full knowledge. It's just translated knowledge. Mm, bummer. Got to be consistent. Okay? Because it doesn't necessarily fit the theology there. But here it's very clear that those who've escaped the corruption of the world through the epigenosis of Jesus, those who are described as genuine believers there, who can become short-sighted, can become blind, can become unfruitful and forget they were even saved, right? They can be overcome. Obviously, if you can forget you were saved, you can be overcome by these guys and become blind. Amen? So if after they've escaped the corrupt defilements of the world by the epigenosis of, or as the NIV actually has, if you have NIV, anybody have an NIV translation? What does it have? 2 Peter 2, 20. Oh, you have the, oh, but you don't have, oh, it's okay, no problem. Um, at least you admitted it. I think that's brave of you. You know, I'm just kidding. It's a good translation in many ways, okay? Not, but it says after knowing Jesus there, because it's after knowing Jesus, you know? Uh, they are again entangled in them, again, meaning they got free, but they're again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than what? The first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. Though, by the way, it'd be better for them not to have known the what? The way of righteousness. What's the way of righteousness? Jesus. Remember, the false teachers will twist God's word and the way of truth will be maligned. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? So after knowing epigenosis, Jesus, and they, they turn away from the way of righteousness, and having, after having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment, hand it down to them. Look at verse 22. It had been better, oh, I'm sorry, it has happened to them according to what? The true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, that's gross, and a sow, after washing, returns to what? Wallowing in the mire. That's gross too. Nice and clean goes back to while in the mire. Oh, that means the pig was never saved. That's not the point. The point is from chapter one. You can fall away, Peter says, and forget that you were what? Washed, purified. It means cleansed from your past sins. The picture he's painting is of a believer who's been cleansed from their sins, gets short-sighted blind and goes back to the smut and becomes dirty all over again and is content to be there and forgets they were ever washed in the first place. That's sad. I'm going to move on because I, I'd love to hang out on all these passages, but we can't uh, get through chapter 3 real quick. 
This now, beloved, it's the last chapter, uh, second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, there it is again, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Powerful, man. Follow, man, read the prophets, amen? How long has it been since you read the prophets? You know, look, we're reading the apostle Peter right here. The teachings of Jesus. Verse 3. Know this, first of all, that the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lust. And boy, is that happening right now. Amen. Just look at the, the, the far left, man. They're just mockers, man. Mockers are the things of God. Verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Okay, for every, uh, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from, from, the, beginning of cre- or, uh, was from the beginning of creation. And you even get that in the church by people that believe in creation. Oh, well, Christ's second coming isn't literal, you know? He's just a great example. You get all these false teachings that are so popular today. For when they maintain this, and by the way, this is called uniformitarianism, the idea that everything kind of just stays the same. Uh, oh, you know what? They, the prophecy of Christ, I mean, it's even become a joke. Waiting for that person is like waiting for the return or the, of oh, that person, man, waiting for them is like waiting for the, Second coming, you ever hear that one? Okay, it's even been made a joke. Well, where is this coming, right? And everything's the same. Look at what Peter says to that. He, he shows how ridiculous that is. And instead of teaching, exposing, when he exposes a lie of uniformitarianism, everything stays the same, he destroys that lie with the doctrine of catastrophism. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So what they forget is that there's seashells on the highest mountains that God wiped out the earth before with a flood, that God intervenes, that, God, that, that God's destruction of the wicked does not sleep. Amen. This, all, this the whole letter fits together, by the way. Keep in mind, the false teachers are saying you can just sin like hell and don't have to worry about God's judgment. What's Peter saying? His judgment isn't asleep. And these false teachers will all say, hey, don't worry about the second coming. We can do as we will, right? But guess what? Just like there was a flood before, he's coming back again. He's going to go on to say this time in fire. Are you seeing how this fits together? Okay. Through which the world that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, verse 7. But by his word... The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. First time, water, flood of the earth. God promised he wouldn't do it with water again. But guess what? Next time, it's with fire. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Because some of them are going to be saying, but yeah, but why isn't he just bring the judgment now? And sometimes we think, wow, Lord, can't get much more wicked than it is now. Look at how wicked it is. Right now, they're, they're, they're back basically rewarding criminals. Isn't it crazy? I mean, if you've been following news and what's going on right now, they're rewarding criminals. It's amazing. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Meaning you have to look at God's perspective. Okay, God is outside of the time-space continuum. He entered into time, Right? But he's not affected by time in the sense that he experiences long, oh, this takes, this, <laughs> for God, this is a blip. He's been around for eternity, amen. And a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, you and I, we can count differently than God. He looks at our life as just a mere vapor. Compared to him, it's like a vapor. 
It's not a big deal for him to wait, okay? And thank God he did wait, amen? But he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for what? All to come to repentance. He's patient. He's patient with you, and some take that as human beings in general. I take it as possibly it can mean patient with you and me, the church. We're supposed to be fulfilling the Great Commission. Why? Because he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we need to get off our rear ends and get out there. Amen? But he's also patient with us in regard to making, wanting us humans to get right with him. Amen? And by the way, he gave space even to Jezebel. Remember? If he gives space to Jezebel, who's leading his servants astray, certainly he'll give, uh, pa- he has patience for Fred and Frank and Joanne and, and Emily, right? Not the Emily in this fellowship or Joanne, whoever you are. I just throw, pick names out sometimes. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in which the heavens will pass away. No, a seven years, a thief and then seven years of tribulation. No, when he comes back like a thief, judgment's coming, guys. It's not like a thief with destruction. Jesus says he would have boarded up his house, right? So because it's not just a secret whisking away, he's coming to break in, amen? And that day, the Paul said, will not come upon you like a thief. It doesn't come upon believers like a thief, amen? Unless you're backslidden believers, which Jesus warned about in Revelation chapter three, verses four and five to the church at Sardis, that he'll come upon them as a thief if they don't repent. But Paul said that believers who are abiding in Christ, he said, not that they should overtake you as a thief, for you are sons of light, amen? So we're looking at the lamp that shines in a dark place, amen? We're watching for the things at Herod, so it doesn't freak us out when he comes back, amen? We're ready. But there are those who fall asleep and they run out of oil and they're all dozy and they're like, oh, they don't have any oil and the door's shut, man. Do not fall asleep spiritually. Don't become blinded. Don't forget, amen? So he says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. If you read under the sixth seal, seventh trumpet and seventh bowl, you'll see a preview of what this will ultimately happen. This will have its ultimate fulfillment, I believe, after the thousand year reign of Christ. But when you see in the sixth seal, the heavens are rolled up and the earth, every island, every mountain's moved out of its place, right? And there's, he's going to come in flaming fire with his mighty angels, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And, but he's not gonna, there won't be a whole cosmic meltdown totally until after the millennial reign of Christ. And here we have, well, that's a thousand years later, yeah? A thousand years like a day. A day is like a thousand years. That's why I believe the day of the Lord is not just that day, but could encompass the entire thousand year period. Wish I had time to ferret all this out, right? Uh, verse 11, application. Application. This is, listen to what he's saying to you guys and to me. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, don't be like those false teachers and don't be like their converts. Judgment is coming, and since there's going to be a fiery judgment, how ought you be living? You ought to be living a holy life, amen? You ought to be living a life of godliness. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, mer- will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen? The theme of righteousness versus rebellion. It's so clear in this letter. It is so powerful. And we're looking for that new heaven and that new earth. But he says looking for and hastening the coming day of God. What does he mean, hastening the coming day of God? How can hastening means to speed something up? 
How in the world can we speed up the coming of the day of God? The Lord says to preach the gospel, to go into all the world. We're commanded to go. We love to sing songs like come, come to him, come. It's like, and I love the songs about coming to him. Jesus said, come to me, all of you are weird, heavy lady. But the songs that are like, come to the church, if you come to the church, come as you are. It's like, no, that's for, don't be lazy. He says, go, amen. We're commanded to go in all the world, amen. Now, yeah, we want people to come, you pray they come, but you don't just sit around and do nothing, amen. You also want to reach out and be evangelistic, amen, and reach out to the lost, amen. Oh, Lord, help me finish, because I want to preach. Okay, uh, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look, at, uh, you look for these things, be what? Diligent to be found in him in what? Peace, spotless, and blameless. Now, he obviously wants us to seek to be spotless and blameless in our lives practically, but that's not going to happen in an absolute sense until he comes, amen? But, well, how can you be spotless and blameless, though, when he comes? Only if you what? Don't forget you are purified for your past sins and live a life of rebellion, amen, based on the teachings of the false teachers, which he said are coming. And by the way, they're having a huge effect in the church today. This is not written in vain. This, like the book of Jude, warns about the church becoming in a state where so many people are falling away, going to church thinking that they're saved. But they're not continuing to grow and increase in these things that Peter mentions and grow in their faith. They're just not following Jesus anymore. They think they got their life insurance at an altar call. And that breaks my heart. I refer back to the message I did last Sunday on, on the race of salvation. But we want to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 15. And regard the patience of our God, our Lord, as what? Salvation. So when you think, man, Lord, how come you haven't come yet? This world's so wicked. He said, you need to regard his patience as what? Salvation. In other words, God's brain not physical brain, he doesn't have a physical brain, but his mind is so beyond ours. We trust him, amen? He has more people. But wait, how do we, back to hastening the coming of the day of God. How do you hasten it? How do you speed it up? We get off our rear end and we preach the gospel because Jesus said after the gospel is preached and as witness all the nations, then what? The end will come, amen? So we need to get out there and bring people to Christ because after we reach the last person, then, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Paul said, the, the Savior will come, Jesus will come, and Godless, ungodless will be turned from Jacob. Thank God during the tribulation period, because it would be kind of tough to witness at that time, there'll be those two witnesses that the Antichrist can't kill, and there'll be that angel flying through the mid-heavens, it says in Revelation 14, preaching the everlasting gospel, amen? So we're going to get some help. But don't say, oh, I'll just wait for the help to come. No, let's do our duty right now, amen? Let's preach the gospel. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, verse 15, just as also our beloved brother Paul. I love that he calls Paul our beloved brother because Paul rebuked Peter to his face in Galatians. You'll see if you read book of Galatians when Peter, it's a long story I don't have time to get into, but Peter went off a little bit, okay? And I'm tempted to talk about it, but I won't. He just got off a bit in his being a bad example uh, and Paul called him out on it and told him you're being a hypocrite, you know? And Peter repented of it. And Peter writes about Paul being our beloved brother. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We want to accept correction from our brothers and sisters in love. Amen. So, just as our brother Paul, what did Paul talk about? He talked about God's grace, about God's patience, his salvation, that God's a good God. He's being patient with the wicked. Okay, he's a loving God. His, he taught that. And he says, just as Paul taught, right, our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, he wrote to you. Verse 16. As also in all his letters, speaking in them 
of things in which are some things hard to understand. Even Peter admits some of what Paul wrote was hard to understand. Amen. Anybody go through the book of Romans? Okay. You got to read it slow, man. And I've got so many commentaries in Romans and they bait back and forth and everything else. And it's, it's kind of almost, it's humorous, but it's also fun to, you know, see what best, you know. But he says, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, which what? Look what he says in verse 16. Which, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to what? Their own destruction. We're really close to done. This is heavy to me because he's saying that Paul wrote certain things that the unstable are twisting, distorting to their own destruction. What kind of teaching do you think Paul was giving that the unstable, the false teachers were twisting to their own destruction? Grace. Grace. How do we know that? Because Paul over and over in his letters is concerned about that. In Romans, he's saying, should we go on and sin that grace may more abound? May it never be. No, that's not what I'm teaching, Paul says. And then in Galatians chapter 5 and 6, in Ephesians chapter 5, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, three different places Paul gives vice lists of those who will not inherit God's kingdom. He says, don't be deceived each time he gives this list. And I mentioned 5 and 6, because in 5 he gives a list, but he doesn't say that, but he does say in chapter 6 a little bit later when he's talking about the same things of the flesh he was just talking about. Don't be deceived. In other words, Paul was concerned that his grace message be twisted into a license for immorality. Okay, that was his big concern. That's why he'd give these strong warnings about being misunderstood and twisted. Oh, Paul believes that you can be in rebellion to God and everything's going to be right. Paul didn't teach that. Okay, and Peter is speaking about that happening. And guess what? Right now, right now, right now, brothers and sisters, there are tens of millions of people that are caught up in the so-called free grace movement. Okay, the so-called, uh, and that's by, you know, some, uh, a lot of the, dispensationalists that come out of Dallas Theological Seminary, not all of them, a lot of the professors in Dallas Theological Seminary disagree with their teaching, okay? There's others in, in a, the so-called Grace Revolution, Joseph Prince, you don't need to repent, which is they teach in the free grace movement often as well. You don't need to uh, confess your sins anymore, you know? And as long as you accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, you didn't have to turn to him as Lord, you're okay. <laughs> What's going on? Guess what they do? They do this, they twist Paul's teachings. They take certain things he said and ignore other things he said. They ignore what he said about repentance. Okay? They ignored about what he said about examining yourself to see if you're in the faith. They ignore those things. And that creates a huge imbalance. And you know what? When Peter was saying this, I believe he was concerned about the Gnostics. And I have a book by Elaine Pagels. She's a Gnostic, okay? She's a professor of, I mean, she was, was the most popular New Age Gnostic writer although she might not call herself New Age, but she has a lot of Gnostic leanings. And I've got a couple of her books, including the Gnostic Gospels, but I bought another of her books two years ago because it was in the book she talks about Paul and the Gnostics. And she gives these various scriptures that the Gnostics would use to teach that you could, be, you could live a life where you didn't have to follow God's moral law. And she acknowledges, she admits it. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what was going on. You're right. Glad you admitted that. When I go through the book of Jude, I'll actually quote from that book and I'll share with you what she's admitting. But in those days, the Gnostics were the enemy. But fast forward almost 2,000 years later and guess what? Now their doctrine has worked its way into the church in the name of 
Christianity because all the other Gnostic baggage they were trying to bring with it isn't there, but a lot of what they were trying to emphasize is. In fact, Origen, one of the early church fathers, say, said the Gnostics teach that some people are damned in such a way that they can't be saved, like unconditional election. And others are saved in such a way where they can't be damned. He's like, we're warning. The early church fathers were warning about these teachings, but now these are acceptable teachings in the church. Last two verses. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, brothers and sisters, we know this beforehand now. Be on your what? Be on your guard so that you are not what? Carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall what? And fall from your own steadfastness. Remember he warned about stumbling? Brothers and sisters, remember he warned about falling earlier? And he says, brothers and sisters, don't let that happen to you. Now, some people argue with 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, whether he's talking about the false prophets there or those they deceive. To me, in the end, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because here he's warning that you end up in the same place as the false prophets if you follow them. So it applies to both. And in the NIV... It says, see to it that none of you fall from your secure position. And then verse 18, but grow. I love this. It's full circle now, but grow in the what? Grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We continue to grow. I love a lot of Wesley's theology, but I, I'm not, I don't agree personally with the baptism of the Holy Spirit being a subsequent work after salvation. And some of the tendencies in some of the Wesleyan churches, not all of them, thankfully, but became this perfection thing that we, we've, we've somehow attained sinless perfection. He fired a lot of his pastors that were teaching that. But we haven't yet arrived. If we've already arrived, how can we obey this verse that says to grow in grace? Amen. We grow in grace. You continue on your spiritual bike. Amen. You can continue to add these various things to you. And in doing so, you'll continue in the grace of Christ and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. We went way longer than normal. This is like our old times. It's what we used to do every every midweek study. So I haven't done this in a while. I apologize for that in a way. But I don't as well because we got a full feeding. Amen. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. I apologize for your rear end, but otherwise, praise God, or your crying children. I love you guys. But uh, hey, any questions on 2 Peter real quick? Do we cover a lot of ground? Do you know the message of 2 Peter? Praise God. We'll do this once in a while. We'll go through an entire book, but hopefully it'll be maybe a little shorter books. But love you guys. Can we all please stand? Father God, we thank you.